Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service that is dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. back ladies and gentlemen to a brand new episode of the film stage show the movie review podcast for the filmstage.com as always i'm your host brian jerowen with me today we have robin barr i have become death uh finish the ritual what are you doing here you're gonna just say half of it all right bill graham yeah i'm gonna say half it i have become death bitch did you say destroyer of words yes (laughs) what is happening (laughs) this is the worst episode ever but here to help us counteract the present state as worst episode ever. It is our special guest to help us talk about Chris Nolan's newest film, Oppenheimer, and that's Ingu Kang. Hi, thanks for Hello. having me. Thank you for I'll joining us once again. Drinking sullenly in the corner. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good, good times. Glad to hear it. Oh man, this is this is an off episode already, but I'm looking forward. To it. <laughs> it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be awesome. I'm putting it out there in the world. Before we start up, let's uh, get reintroduced to Ingu, who has been on a number of times, including uh, Under the Silver Lake, all the way back in the pre-COVID times of May 6th, 2019. Uh, So Ingu, would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. Um, I am Ingu King. I am the TV critic at The New Yorker. Um, Yes, sir. What? You just have to. You just hesitated for a second, like which? Where do I work now? <laughs> <laughs> New York Magazine. No, The New Yorker. Damn it. <laughs> um, let me see. I do watch movies, and I used to be a film critic. Although um, I will have to say, I am happy I have moved over to the dark side of television. Is there like a is there a reason for that? Is are you like a golden age of television type person or? I think I'm just like a TV person at my heart, but I also did the film criticism for quite a number of years, and I feel like I got burnt out fairly quickly. And I think it was easier for me to get burnt out on movies versus TV because, I don't know, at a certain point, like, I felt like I was just watching the same movie over and over and over. All right. I mean, fair enough. I have have railed against that. Okay, we've been doing this podcast for like over 10 years now, right? So like people have probably seen me go through like three waves of being burned out on film as a medium. So you're in very good company. I think it's hard not to be when you have to cover studio films and just like the weekly releases. If you are the type of person who is like, I'm a criterion boy, I'm just going to watch like the greatest hits of cinema. Like, I think that's like a very different story. But mm-hmm. if you are like reviewing, I don't know, man, like every fucking Gerard Butler movie or whatever, <laughs> or like the Christian movies that, you know, come by like, oh, I, I don't as, know, seven times a year. You're just like, what am I doing with my life a little bit? As the a Catholic, treadmill. I feel like I ought to watch some of those. But as a Catholic who loves movies, I'm not going to. <laughs> I'll just stick with like the Martin Scorsese's of the world. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. There's no there's no need to go anywhere else. Um. So anyway, this is fun. Um. So we're glad that you've broken the TV mold to come back to cinema with us. Um, well, you say that now. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a great time. Um, 
What are we doing? Yeah, uh, so that's awesome. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. That's right. I said it. Twitter at Film Stage Show. Facebook, The Film Stage Show. I think that's it in terms of social media. I don't know if Jordan Raup has put us on threads yet. Uh, Benevolent Lord Master Jordan Raup, let me know. Um, otherwise, you can email us, podcastfilmstage.com. You can give us a comment or rating on iTunes. And you can go to patreon.com slash show to become a patron. For as little as $1 an episode, you can help us to produce this podcast. You can join our Slack channel where we're talking about crazy things all the time. It's a very interesting place to be. You should be there. Um, and don't forget that we're also brought to you by Mubi, which, of course, is a curated streaming service that's dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore the best of cinema streaming anytime, anywhere, your curators will ensure that you don't suffer from cinematic burnout. Um, what are we talking about this week? I found a really fun one that they've got coming out. It's called Il Buco, uh, winner of the Special Jury Prize in Venice. This spellbinding docudrama from Michelangelo Framartino, I am so sorry, was described by jury president Bong Joon-ho as a mystical cinematic experience, a metaphysical exploration of Italy's deepest cave Il Buco marries ravishing images to profound spiritual inquiry. So that's a fun one that I don't believe I'd really heard about. Uh, if you're looking for a movie that got a lot of play back in the day and you might not have thought about in a while and you missed and you want to catch up with, they've also got Sex and Lucia. So that's coming out as well, uh, starring Paz Vega. So check it out. And that's, uh, that's it. So if you would like to experience the wonder that is movie... For free for 30 days, all you gotta do is go to movie.com slash filmstage. Again, that is M-U-B-I.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial on us. So go and do that. That's about it as far as front matter is concerned. Uh, does anyone have anything to say before we hop on in to our review of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer? No, it's really not hot yet. in Texas. <laughs> It's really hot everywhere. It was uh, it was like 100 degrees here yesterday. I'm pretty sure I passed out at the end of the day due to dehydration. But I'm back, baby. I'm doing all right. Woo. Hey. All right. Let's do it. Uh, Oppenheimer is the newest film from writer-director Christopher Nolan. This is his follow-up to Tenant. Uh, stars Killian Murphy, uh, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, and many, 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 many others who I am sure that we will talk about. And here is part of the trailer. This is a national emergency. Detonator's charged. in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. All right. So that is part of the trailer for Oppenheimer. It's out in theaters now. This movie, based on the book American Prometheus, uh, chronicles the life and times of uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. Um, we begin, as always, with our nutshell spoiler-free thoughts. I don't know how much this movie can be spoiled. feel like, for the most part, everyone knows how this turns out. But, uh, yeah, we'll start as vague as we can before slowly moving into more detail. 
And I honestly don't know if we're going to have a spoiler warning. So like, you know, deal with it. <laughs> we begin, right. as always, with our guest, Ingu. What are your thoughts on Oppenheimer? Oh, I have to start? Okay. <laughs> you're, you're the guest. Of course you do. I did not like this movie when the uh, screen went to black. I was the asshole who just yelled out, finally, uh, when it was over because oh, I... You're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I just like... I think that there are... So this movie is like in two parts, right? Like the first half is about essentially the lead up to and the Manhattan Project. Uh, and then the second half is a very, very, very long-winded uh, courtroom drama, essentially, involving a very random vendetta. And the first half of this movie culminates with the atom bomb. And then the second half of this movie is about some guy's clearance uh, like security clearance, clearance. Some guy <laughs> <laughs> about Oppenheimer's security clearance uh, being threatened, and I just felt like, why am I supposed to care about this? I felt like the stakes were really lopsided. I have heard from some people, including from Robin, that they found the second half of the movies like a lot more engaging than the first, which I found to be a bizarre uh, assertion. And I also think that Christopher Nolan might never have met a human woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bill Graham. Hmm. What to say about a three-hour movie uh, that, that half of it is in black and white? Um, I will say this. It, it is very strange that this is a film that is trying to push this, you know, premium large format, this PLF uh viewing experience for what is essentially the most talky movie i've seen in quite a while like uh i remember someone was joking that uh this was very much like an aaron sorkin movie it was just talk 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 and i was surprised that nolan was really pushing for this to be seen in a big screen um it makes sense the more you think about it because the cinematic experience is usually just enhanced by uh, making tickets expensive enough that hopefully people shut up and actually watch. Um, but that doesn't mean that the actual movie is worth that uh, experience. I think this film, its fatal flaw is that it draws you in for the big atomic bomb uh, test and then it still has another hour to go um and i feel like he wanted both things he wanted the prestige he wanted the big screen cinematic experience he wanted the you know uh to use some of these new toys whether it's robert downey jr uh things like that um on screen to kind of have fun with uh this backstory and i feel like it feels halved and i would like one or the other i feel like the fact that it it splits it in two um like an atom uh is Ooh. not Ooh. Ooh. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, i'll take my bow um yes uh 
I just feel like he he didn't commit to one or the other. And I feel like it, the audience very much can feel that tension. And it's it is odd. I, I agree with Ingu that I don't I get the security clearance of it all, but the way it is set up is so strange. And with Nolan's famously muddled dialogue and all of these other things going on, it's hard to understand if I missed something and I'm pretty sure I didn't. And because I've heard other people exclaim that they were kind of confused why this was like a thing. Um, And I guess maybe this is the time that maybe we we save that for spoiler discussion so we can kind of go fully into that. But yeah, I, I think it's extremely well acted. It's beautifully shot. It's, you know, like all the things on the peripheral is really well done as most Nolan films are these days, but I just found it kind of a, it's, it isn't the experience that I wanted uh, from Nolan on this film. So yeah, we'll talk more. All right. Rum bar. Yeah. I actually think I'm more positive on it. Oh, I know for sure. I'm more positive of it. Uh, sorry. I know I'm more positive on it than bill or Ingu, but I actually have a lot of similar complaints about the movie. So, uh, you know, it, in some ways it's uh, almost how I felt about Barbie where I was like, okay, this Barbie was like a solid B plus comedy sort of elevated by like one or two specific elements, but just felt like a little off no matter what. I really feel the same way about this, which is like, this is a solid B plus drama in the vein of a Sorkin, like, like one of you said, except that what I really valued about this movie is that I found it very intellectually engaging. Uh, I don't know if that's because I'm, I, I'm interested in this history. I don't know if I'm interested in like, I don't know if it's because I'm in, I became recently interested in like the McCarthy era. Um, I've always had a fascination with like the birth of physics. So there are lots of personal reasons why I felt drawn in by it, but I do have to agree very heartily that, you know, for a Nolan film, it's just not really visually interesting at all. Um, it kind of felt like, yeah, there were one or there were a couple of things that are sort of expressionistic about Nolan's vision, but you know, for a movie about the A-bomb, it just does not include a lot of science. It does not include a lot of... a, a lot How of, much of the science would you have understood if it included... I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> this is already the worst episode of this podcast that I've ever been a part of. Does it matter how much I would have understood? I would have learned something. I would have, I would have been able to... You know, it's like when you watch a movie about a writer and then you never see them write versus watching a movie about an artist and watching them, you know, sculpt or, or whatever, which was one of the reasons that Richard Brody loved the movie showing up and hated the new. Oh Hall my God. You finally movie. remembered the name of the movie. Yes. I finally remembered the name of it. It really <laughs> had to burn into my brain. That's how I felt about this. I was like, okay, where's the science? Like he kept calling him a, th- he kept calling himself a theoretical physicist. I'm like, I get that. It's all theory. But then it's like, can you tell me what you're working on? Like, what are, what is the actual, me- like, the methodology of this? Because that, I, I felt, was really missing. 
And it doesn't matter if I have the brain of a physicist or not. I want to know. I I wanted to be in the muck with these characters. But either way, you know, there's been a lot of criticisms about seeing the carnage versus not seeing it. I didn't feel like it was necessary. So that really didn't bother me. But it still could have been a little more spectacular considering that, you know, it's an IMAX and it's this is what Nolan is is known for. Um just felt restrained unnecessarily restrained and like honestly could not agree more with ingu in the sense that the these female characters these two female characters in a movie are like so superfluous that i would have actually preferred for it to be an all-male cast with no female characters just so that i didn't have to deal with the shoehorned nature of some woman he fucked and some woman he impregnated and had to marry those characters were just so terribly written you know they did the actors Pew and Emily Blunt like uh, sorry um, Florence Pew Emily Blunt they did their best but like they did their best with absolute shit and I almost couldn't stand looking at Emily Blunt in this role because it was just so beneath her alcoholic what it was so alcoholic it was just so like we get it, lady. Like I don't know it. Yeah, her personality I, was alcoholism. It really was. It really was. It was just really poorly done. Everybody's saying like, "Oh, like Oscar nomination," and I'm like, "Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, she will be. She should be." Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, but I say these complaints with the caveat that I I had a good time in the theater. And I do agree that the second half was better because I enjoyed the courtroom drama. And yeah, maybe, maybe government clearance feels like low stakes, but it's it's a huge humiliation. It for is. Somebody. That's the fucking point: is that it's low stakes. Yes, exactly. And so, <laughs> so I didn't feel they quite openly as... state in the movie how important it is that it be low stakes. It it, it was just. I I get the. Um, I get sort of the emotional flagellation that that experience felt like. So I I liked the dual courtroom scenes and I really loved Robert Downey Jr. in this. And Benny Softy was probably my second favorite mm-hmm. performance. His eyelashes. Murphy, like his eyelash, <laughs> the, the grease was like. <laughs> constantly sweaty, man. Up so with Ben Mendelsohn in terms of best supporting grease. <laughs> supporting sweat so yeah i mean there's a lot of things that worked for me but i i actually fully understand why people have not enjoyed it i mean again it is very dry probably for most audiences it felt like because i because i have a personal interest in this history that maybe it was like more accessible for me or whatever but that but i understand why it would not be for most people so I love this movie. Uh, I think it's course. a masterpiece. 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5, 4 out of 4. Wow. Like, I, like, to the point that, like, I don't even feel like we all watched the same movie with some of the stuff I'm hearing. And I'm honestly concerned about how I'm going to take part in this conversation. <laughs> um, um, it's it's amazing. It's it's fantastic. Like, the the last part of this movie after the detonation at Trinity is like the whole climax of the film. And it's not like bifurcated or split apart. It's literally what the entire movie has been working up towards. And you only think it's working up towards Trinity. If you're like not paying attention to the movie, it's the, the movie 
isn't about the science. It is about the bomb, but it's about an exploration of this character who acts as like the key to unlock the potential for humanity to destroy itself. The and science is more interesting. It's not. It's fucking not. Like it's it it wouldn't be for me anyway, I should say. Like I don't want to learn science in a movie. I don't need a, a musician to teach me music theory. I want to see the symph or I want to hear the symphony. In this case, I want to see the bomb. And I the the movie is I think is it's very un- funny that you think musicians know music theory. <laughs> there are some who do. Some. <laughs> but that's the thing is that like I I don't I prefer the people who just noodle who like jazz out and are like I have no idea why I know this <laughs> and noodlers. Yeah, that's what they call it. Um and and I Oppenheimer don't want famously Oppenheimer a noodler to sit up there and try to explain <laughs> the science to me because the science is not interesting. What's interesting is the drive, the ambition that made this thing happen and whether or not that came from a place of of selfish desire to be the best or an actual pragmatic desire to save lives and the unknowability of that and how they're intertwined. I I don't think the female characters are superfluous. Uh, he definitely doesn't because otherwise he wouldn't be like haunted by them and wrapped up in them and un- ultimately partially he is not by them. wrapped up in Emily Blunt. At I don't all. think he's wrapped up in Emily Blunt. I think he's wrapped up in Florence Pugh. Like he has a his relationship literally with her, in that one courtroom. Yes, <laughs> yeah, which was an incredible moment in this movie. Uh, one of sure, like several dozen something. incredible moments. Incredibly horrifying. <laughs> See, this is like I'm talking about. Like I just can't. Like I'm not going to be able to have a conversation about this movie. Like it's just. Like, We're not making fun of you. This is how we would. This is how we have been talking about the movie. Like, can we? Oh, like a problem we? in terms of trying to have a conversation about. It. Can we play a super quick game just to lighten up the mood a little bit? Okay. Uh, Is it a drinking Uh, game? Because I don't have any alcohol. This is my proposal. Okay. Which uh, character actor, of which there are dozens in this movie, which character actor either really surprised you or made you go WTF or like, wait, that's him? It's super interesting you say that because uh, Safdie, right? Benny? Yeah. The first time I saw this movie, I was like, this is such an oddly calibrated, out of place performance. I like kind of hated it. And then the second time I saw the movie, it clicked for me. And I was like, actually, this is incredible. I love this. Everything he's doing is fantastic. Like when he is at the table at the, the hearing, and I don't even try to do the voice, but he's like, I do believe it. And I still believe it. And I will until I'm shown other evidence. I was like, this is actually like, an incredible performance. He's so 70s. I don't know what it is, but it, his vibe is like 70s what? movie star director. Do you mean in this movie or like as a human being? No, just like in like in every movie, there's just something so vintage about Softy. I think it's because we don't see a lot of uh, swarthy men, <laughs> like swarthy Jewish guys, like are just not like as prevalent as they were 50 years ago in the cultural consciousness i think part of the 70s-ness is that it's not just a swartiness but there's a sort of like feminine what, what is to him at the same time mostly because of those fucking eyelashes it's the eyelashes yeah <laughs> but like what, yeah what is, is what is that word saying eyelashes do you mean eyebrows 
eyelashes. No, are you kidding me? No, no, no. Have eyes? <laughs> I didn't eyelashes. see any lashes. I was, His I was distracted like by the brows. Eyelashes. <laughs> He's like a beautiful cow with those eyelashes. I, I, I don't, don't know for it. <laughs> what what does swarthy mean? Swarthy means like Twice. dark and hairy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> How did you watch this movie twice, but you never noticed that man's eyelashes? Because it was like I'm literally constant... all I could look at. Because he, first of all, because again, he's very greasy, and <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. The first yeah, time I saw it in it, seventy, like, I saw it in seventy millimeter and digital projection, so maybe I need to see it in IMAX to see the eyelashes. Oh, I thought it looks IMAX, like he's so... wearing eyeliner too. There... Yes, <laughs> like maybe he is. Maybe this is signature is like Pharaoh. Maybe he's very tired. <laughs> Oh, uh, who's that like other actor who's like have eyelashes? Nestor Carbonell. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another one that's right. always accused, the one that's always accused of wearing eyeliner. And he's like, I don't. He was in Sorry. Lost. What was his name in yep. Lost? I can't even remember. I don't know. He was okay. great in Lost. Though. I'm just going yeah, to go yours, out there Ingu? and say that. So, like, I watched this with a friend, and the entire time we were like, wait, is that? Josh Hartnett. Wait, is that my friend thought Jason Clark was Matthew Reese, which was offensive to Oh, that's funny. Um, but the one that <laughs> wow, I just ouch. could not get over ouch was to Matthew Reese. Truly. Yeah, how poorly do you think Matthew Reese is aged? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Matthew. Uh, is Dane DeHaan. I completely oh, he's such a slimy piece All of right, I have shit to Google. I completely like. Is? No, he's oh, unrecognizable no. here. He's the like bespectacled toady who's like, um, actually, I was, oh. at, I was at Los Alamos, <laughs> and these this guys had meetings guy. all the time. <laughs> he was the like little bitch to Matt Damon. Yeah, who yes. then became like an incredibly powerful person and who fucked over guy? Oppenheimer. He's the guy who was supposed to be the next Leo. Or are you talking about the real person? No, the real person. Because I, <laughs> oh, I, never mind. <laughs> yeah, no. Dane DeHaan was like primed to be the next Leo. He was in that that space movie that no one saw, like the Million and One Nights. No, the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, Valerian in the City of a Thousand Val Planets. Valerian. Yeah. And then he was. Yeah, in, oh um, man, I he, wanted to like that so much. He was like Harry Osborn in one yep. of the Spiders. Man. <laughs> yep. He turns into Green Goblin, which is one of the craziest makeup effects you've ever seen in your life. It just oh, it looks like he's melting. It's also because like, he's oh, like God. sick. He has like some genetic deformity. I don't know. Those movies yeah. were It's bad. <clears throat> wow, anyway. I had no clue. Also, he I've was the main character. Wasn't he the main character in that Gore Bravinsky movie, A Cure for Wellness? Okay, I guess you're the only one to say that. <laughs> yeah, clearly, Jesus Christ. That was a silence. He's been in a lot of movies I have never seen. But that was Metallica through the never. That's that movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a, a concert movie. film. It, but it's a concert film. But like they shot like elements yeah. of a narrative for it. All right, that's yeah, yeah, fucking no. annoying. Yeah, it's it's awful. it's Nimrod and Tall. Okay, so he was in the other movie that was just a cameo orgy, which is Lincoln. Hmm. Yeah, that doesn't show. I don't remember him. That he was probably well, like him a Union that. soldier covered in mud. It literally like, says I mean, second course, white yeah. soldier. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Was it was it him and um Adam Driver? I don't know. I haven't seen Lincoln, thank God, more okay. than once. So the other character actor or the other small role that really impressed me for this is Casey Affleck. Okay, thank no, you. No, it's Casey Affleck. 
Um, yeah, I, I like think that. Casey Affleck was scary think, as shit in this movie. Yeah, when he shows up on screen, it was funny. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about how I guess they can just recognize his voice now because the scene that we're talking about, it's introductory scene of him is just a shot from him from behind mm-hmm. at first. And he's just talking. And I was just like, Oh, this motherfucker, I know who this is. Wow. And you know, it turns and pans and then shows him and you're like, ah, yep. Okay. It's Casey. I, rec- I recognized um, the voice, but didn't remember how I recognized it. And then when it showed him, I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and um, at Just yeah, like at some point he talks about how he wants to interrogate this person in the Russian style on yeah, a boat. Was, <laughs> just well, like, so it's, oh, okay. it's not even him saying it. What's great about that it's whole Matt Damon scene, saying that yeah. about him. Yeah. yeah, what's great about that whole scene is he's just like this nice little like effacing like oh what like what do you what like what do you mean like what's that supposed to? and like it's intercut mm-hmm. with Matt Damon being like. I can't believe you sat in a room and talked with that fucking psychopath. Like he wanted to take yeah. a guy out in a boat and interrogate him in the Russian fashion. He said there'd be no one left to like bring cases against. Like his dad was a Russian Orthodox priest. He hates communists with everything in him. Yeah. It's bananas. Yeah. That scene rules. Casey Affleck's great in it. Um, Robin, do you have a character actor you want to, you know, I'm, I've been thinking because I mean, I would argue Benny softy, but you know, I, I don't have one that I really loved, but you know what really got on my nerves was Gary Oldman. <laughs> no, God, that's such a good scene. It is Every a good scene. Don't get me wrong. Good. It's a very good scene. But I think I was just annoyed by Gary Oldman doing his, like, Gary Oldman thing. Being <laughs> one of the best living actors. You know, just being sort of, like, rubber-faced. Like, that just gets on my nerves with him. I don't think he um, was particularly rubber-faced in this one. I think this one, he was weirdly stolid, and that's kind of what makes it scary. Oh, I thought it was so c- comedic. Mm-hmm. Weird, okay. Like, I thought it was, yeah, like, purposely the, the, comedic. The, I think it was the, the amount the of makeup is just, it's a lot. Yeah, I think that that's where I'm getting at. Like, there was something so, like, uh, like, Tom Cruise in a mask in Mission Impossible. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, Those are usually the, just the other actor, though. <laughs> I know, but when he rips off the mask, it's just like so. It's very rubbery. Like, you, know <laughs> you know that part where uh, Haley Atwell's pretending to be Vanessa Kirby? It just looked like that. And then it's like offstage whisper, and it's like, it was? <laughs> that was Vanessa Kirby? Oh, shit. You know who? Uh, I guess Olivia Thirlby. Yes. I like her was, a lot. She was fun for the like two seconds that we had of her. Yeah, I wish she was in this more. I wish I wish that that would have been a nice role to elevate, even if it wasn't necessarily true, because mm. why not? Like, like, but like, because <laughs> the fuck cares? <laughs> she's why got not? a vagina, I guess. So, Bill, you, know, you believe in tokenizing women in our films? Uh, I mean, <laughs> might as well, since we already are doing it. I mean, well, there are two women statement. in this whole movie. <laughs> Well, there's three. We just said there's Olivia Thurman. Oh, I forgot. Right, right. Uh, how many times? Okay, so how many nipples did we see? Just the two? Uh, two, but like multiple times in different scenes. So like yeah. 14 maybe? I don't know. Well, I saw Cillian Murphy's, so. Oh, uh, that's a good point. True. I wish I did. So I, 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 now that I'm looking back. I, I'll, I'll say three. I'll say three. I'll say three. I don't think. Legs. I don't think I saw both, so. 
I think I just started to get like, okay, is this technically a good performance by Kelly Murphy? That's a fucking loop. Yes, it is. <laughs> and yet I feel like he is absolutely lost in a oh sea God. of supporting actors. Like, mm. well, we know from Asteroid City that you hate when a lot of good people get together to do a lot of stuff in a movie. I do. It didn't bother me. <laughs> it just me annoys as much you when so many great people come together to make a film. <laughs> it does. Don't you fear, like. <laughs> This didn't bother me as much. I don't know why. Well, this one, well, this one's not as star fuckery as it, Asteroid it City. To I be fair, like, Asteroid it, City isn't star fuckery. It, you know what? That movie is going, so fucking. I'm, you can all just talk. That movie I'm gonna go have is a like drink. fucking the entire solar system. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. At least yeah. the the supporting characters here felt a little. You know, like they had a purpose as a instead of just like, look at me, I'm Scarlett Johansson pretending to be Elizabeth Taylor. Right. I'm like, Scarlett Johansson, well, the co-lead of this movie and the emotional linchpin. Right. That's just star fuckery. Well, I, I think I think one thing that's key is that when you are making a historical, you know, drama or whatever you want to title this, a biopic, um, either way, it it has to be littered with a lot of people from history. And so I think it kind of gets away with, oh, this famous person is, you know, playing this one scene, right? It, it kind of makes sense a little bit more than maybe Asteroid City, where you have a little bit more control over, okay, do I need a bit role here? I'm no, sorry, are we pretending that other than J. Robert Oppenheimer, we have heard of any of these people? I mean, no, I've heard but I'm talking Einstein about and Heisenberg. Uh, I'm and talking Niels about Bohr, so like that. Got yeah, like, at least so like three uh, and I Teller. Also, uh, yeah, Teller. Um, I mean, not Strauss. But okay, Groves, you guys are getting lost in the weeds. I just, just wanted to make. Yeah, <laughs> I just wanted to make fun of Bill for one second. Oh, okay. Right. Well, that's complete. Yeah, I'll cut okay, out the part yes. where we correct you. Are, you. you are welcome. <laughs> Ingu, Ingu is like y'all ruined my joke. Yes. Okay. You know what? I'm gonna turn this uh, conversation a bit more. Turn it away from I'm Asteroid take City. It, I'm gonna take it a little bit more seriously, and I'm going to talk about why this movie really annoyed me. Okay. Okay. So I think. So I think that like the movie set me up for not just a biopic about one person, but a specific person who lives in a specific milieu and how his socio-political context informed his decision to participate in and continue barreling with the Manhattan Project after we realized uh, it's not exactly necessary. So, you know, uh, there are a lot of scenes early on in the movie. I guess this is like maybe your spoiler alert um, where wah, 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 wah. Spoilers for history. <laughs> <laughs> where he's in Europe. There is a lot of talk about anti-Semitism. Obviously, the Nazis not like a big, you know, historical fan of Jews. And I think a lot of that really drives him as a character, this um, idea that, you know, there is entrenchedly a us versus them as a result of the war and obviously that larger social political context gets carried through with the mccarthy hearings and how uh oppenheimer is eventually just sort of humiliated i understand all of that the part for me that was missing and i think 
partly like why the movie felt a little bit disingenuous or sort of calculated in a way that I felt like it was missing something is that I think I come from a place where like obviously World War II era Japan terrible people objectively Mm -hmm. Um, and yet at the same time the decision to drop the bomb on the Japanese can't really be divorced from me uh, from the anti-Asian or anti-Japanese racism of that period. Um, Mm -hmm. The internment sort of being like an obvious example Mm -hmm. of that. And so to never once mention the fact that that might also have to play some role in this decision and to sort of say, well, like this is really about the change in humanity. And this is not specifically at all about like the actual group that the 110,000 people that were actually killed belong to. That just like, it just like didn't feel quite right with me. And the movie even sort of says there's like a line in the movie somewhere where it's something like, we don't actually need to drop this bomb in order to win this war. And like, sure, there's like a calculation there in terms of like, we can get our boys home faster if we do drop this bomb. But it just, I feel like I just like needed that aspect of the sociopolitical context if you're going to make a movie about the sociopolitical context. I think that's extremely valid. Um, I think the movie sort of hints at, like very strongly hits at, but never really explicitly states that the bomb occurred as a way to intimidate enemies or intimidate you know the soviet union um you know i think that's where i think that's the movie's argument but it's never but the victims are the victims exactly yeah that's what i'm saying yes so it's like very much done as like a look my dick is bigger than yours um Mm -hmm. but it does but the film does so without giving a fuller picture besides describing you know oh some of the people who were not immediately killed thought they were safe. And then when they mm-hmm. came they out, then out. they, then they died. Like it, it was a, again, a restrained or limited way of exploring the, those particular outcomes. And I understand that's not the argument of the film, but I do think, you know, if you're going to make a three hour movie about this mm-hmm. entire experience, then, you know, that might have been a little, that's might have been something to be up. I agree. And if you. you're going to yeah. talk about prejudice against one group, but then kind of completely ignore the prejudice mm-hmm. of another group, like well, because it just, by that point, I feel like the prejudice about towards that group was wrapped up in the fact that they were like legitimately our enemy during a massive global spanning war again the movie points out that the war was not actually necessary or sorry that the bomb, the bomb. was not necessary well, to the, win the war well, this yeah, is like a point that the movie the itself war, says but that me but like the the movie is pr- actually pretty good about like kind of running that line but not quite saying like we don't have to do this like sure we could have won the war and japan was like an enemy that had been defeated but it would have involved you know, they even say it in the movie, like a full scale, like honest to God invasion of the islands. And that would have been much more difficult and would have cost more American lives. And in the case of a war, 
you tend not to want to have your side died needlessly. Sure. Isn't that but also, this is a bomb of a nature that has never been dropped before. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're going to make that argument, I just feel like that moral calculus really needed to be elaborated I, for me almost, to it, it feel almost feels... sort of more, for me to like sort of trust the movie more. Mm-hmm. But it's weird because like the like... entire time in the movie... Up until like, you know, in the in the movie's time, like 10 minutes before the Trinity test, like they're talking about the Germans, like they're not even thinking about Japan. That's because, my point. Right. And so it's that it is that whiplash where it's almost like, well, we've got it. We've got to use it. And it becomes and they have the the scene in the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of War, maybe at that point was they were still called um, saying like, look, what if we did it in like uh, an area that like they could see it, but it's not like on them. You know, they, they have all these... As a show of force. Right. And they talk about it, but they, they're like, no, we need we need the full destruction to be seen. And we need to do it the first time so it's awful. And then we need to do it the second time so they know it's replicable. So that they will capitulate, like, completely and utterly. And I can't remember the term that they... Like, a full and unconditional surrender. Mm-hmm. I know, understand we, all of this. But I also think that a lot of American history in the 20th century and before it is really about considering the lives of people who are not white more disposable than the lives of white people. And therefore, if you are, again, going to make a movie about a sociopolitical context, it just felt missing to me. And that is why I could not be fully on board with this movie. I also have other complaints about the movie, but that was like mm-hmm. my main objection to the movie. But I guess and I'm I just to get that across. curious because if their initial plan was to drop it on Germany, like if they if it had been dropped on Germany, like is that a context you would want talking about the way that we view like certain kinds of Europeans, or is it like purely related to the fact that it just it happened in Japan? Because like if, if, it, if, that... if they were always like, well, we're not going to use this on Germans, we're going to use this on the Japanese. But, like, they 100% wanted to use it on Germans. So it really feels like, at that point, it was it was not... The consolation prize? Yeah, honestly. Like, they, we need to do it to someone. And also, like, the fighting on Iwo Jima and Okinawa had been so fucking awful that they were like, if this is how they're fighting for these islands, like, can you imagine when we try to go to, like, the main archipelago? Like, it's going to be a fucking nightmare. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. It's like I understand like from a like postmodern retroactive kind of thing, wanting more of that discussion. But why I don't is this know. a postmodern thing if I'm literally just talking about the historical context that the movie. But like, is that the context that those present. characters were looking at it in? Because if it's not, then I'm not positive what addition that I would make to the this contemporary is one of those understanding. Where... I mean, I don't think it's like a contemporary understanding thing, really, because like the racism was like of that time and mm-hmm. people drew attention to it. So this is not like me coming in with like a completely uh, novel New. lens. Yeah. I also think that even though it is presented to us as something that was only thought of perhaps in Oppenheimer's brain as something that was going to be uh, dropped on Europe. I don't think we, I don't think like the four of us as individuals like 
precisely know what exactly was going on in Oppenheimer's brain in terms of thinking about like the two theaters in World War II. So all I am saying is that in a movie depiction about the socio-political context, I also wanted that context, which was highly relevant, to be discussed. That is all I'm saying. I think I'll say two things here. So I I definitely agree, Ingu. I think what's interesting is we see kind of the fallout from the, the dropping of the bomb on Oppenheimer and it doesn't it doesn't seem like it it turns back around and talks about that he never i've never i don't recall him ever saying like we didn't actually have to do this we you know blah 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 right it could have it could have touched on that a little bit whether he said it or not i don't know um but the other thing that i find interesting is that this is a very long film and i felt like it it Played lip service just enough to kind of touch on that subject, but I I thought it was interesting that you know they mention it over and over and over, and I didn't know these figures. I don't even know if it's if it's you know I assume most of this stuff is is fairly factual, but I'm not going to go in here and say everything in here happened like it's depicted on screen. But when Matt Damon's character mentions the multi billion dollars that are that was spent on developing this thing. It it reminds me so much that like, oh, they weren't just going to spend three billion dollars and not do something with that. Right. And that's that's the scary part of it is they were kind of they had already pushed their chips in. And I guess, you know, in in some way that that ended up, you know, uh, hurting Japan because of that. Right. Um, we, we thought we had a good reason to, you know, develop this bomb and then we won that arms race and then it was like, well, let's use it here. And so, you know, I think Oldman's character, when he's like, get this crybaby out of here, I think it's, it's kind of touching on that a little bit that, you know, they were determined to use it. Yeah. I mean, I, I see what. Ingo was saying, absolutely. And I also, it does remind me that the film is extremely, what am I trying to say? Like it, it just jumps from Germany as the enemy to we're going to drop this on Japan with, with not a lot of context about what's happening during the war. And in one hand, I'm like, that's probably done for artistic reasons, right? Because that's what it may have felt like to Mm -hmm. the scientists that suddenly Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, we're completely shifting focus here. Why are we doing that? But I I do agree that even despite that shock, there, there should have been probably a little more explored about even just Japan's role in the war and not just being like, why, you know, why are we suddenly making this grand shift when, it's not necessary. Like I, I see the artistic choice, well, but I agree that Japan's it could have made it war. richer. Like, do we need to say like Japan, who is also an Axis power? Do but that's what I'm saying. So like I know lots about World War II. I'm sure all we all do here, and so my brain kind of filled in a lot of uh, what Ingo is describing, which is like the inherent racism, um, the the 
the vitriol, you know, I, you know, on toward Japan and, and the vitriol that Japan had for, for the U S and, and so like, I knew all of those things without the film explicitly stating it, but I do think that it makes it a richer movie to explore more of who you are hurting in the end. And I, and I know, and I feel like I understand why Nolan did not make that choice because he wanted it to feel maybe perhaps more jarring, but ultimately I think it could have just shifted our understanding of the story better if we had more of that info. I think it just would have added to the moral complications of the movie. Mm -hmm. And it just like felt a little bit more simplistic than it had to be. And I think like a cynical part of me also just sort of thought, well, like it's obviously playing to American audiences familiarity much greater familiarity with sort of like the European theater and that sort of like focus on the Nazis versus anything going on in the Pacific theater. Well, the concern was that, that that Germany was making their own bomb. So we had to do it first. Mm -hmm. And then when Hitler kills himself and Germany collapses and all that happens, they've still got to fight Japan. And so they start shifting their eyes there. But like for the longest time, I don't know. Like Japan just wasn't a nuclear threat. You know, you, when you're, when you when you're fighting someone with fists and then someone walks up with a gun, you get a gun to fight the person with the gun. <laughs> and but if I that think person is gone, then you but, go back to I the think, person with the fist. But like, I think I this just, is exactly what I'm trying to say. That's exactly that, what she's like, saying. If that's like the moral equation here, why wouldn't you fucking talk about that? I if feel like, like they Japan did. is a no. Then they alluded to it, but it I wasn't think it explored. just like, could have been like a more developed theme, especially in a movie that had so many repetitive scenes. Yes. where I was like, I already got this point. Like, you could have just given me something new over there. But I mean, I they agree. have that whole scene I where agree. they say, like, "If Hitler's dead, why do we need this bomb anymore?" And yes, but that doesn't explore Japan's the the role or like the the national the sentiment towards Japan. Made. Yeah. Okay. And, that, that, <laughs> and I don't think Inga's point is like a wokeism thing or I mean, whatever. I don't there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Please don't try to do that to me, Robin. Canceled. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I'm, what I'm just making my own point, which is that's not... I don't think that's the context in which it's being brought up. But I don't think that's up. the context in which the scientists are thinking about it. And but like, how do they know? Because that's are... because in the terms of the movie and what the movie is doing, that's not what they talk about. Like, yes, but I think like that's a very pointed and very angled depiction. And I guess like, do you think you know, they were like more happy to use it because it wasn't? Here's Germany? the thing. Like, here's the thing. The whole we're just the sitting around here trying to like read the minds of people who are now long dead. So yeah, I don't really see the point of doing that. The, the like, and the point of the movie is to try to give us an insight into at least one of those minds, and that's J. Robert Oppenheimer. And so it's possible that these conversations were happening around him, and he had no conception of it i mean he walks into a meeting yeah he's not like a super worldly person who speaks a bunch of languages or anything <laughs> i mean he why is, would he but, keep uh, up with the news he but oh my god okay all right whatever so what what would have been i'm truly just like 
basing this on what the movie is giving. But me. I mean, he because is the keeping up with the news. Per- he he does know that Hitler's killed himself. He brings up the fact that Japan is still fighting, but he openly says that's not what we are here for. Like we and he he has that great speech that was basically like we, you know, think of what we think of. We have our imaginings and we are horrified by them. Right. He knows that everyone in that room is capable of conceptualizing what this thing means. And someone is going to do it because the second that the research was published that you could split the uranium atom, they immediately said, oh, this could be used to do a bomb. And they knew the Germans were going to do it. And they were pretty sure that the Soviets were going to do it. And they knew that someone was going to do it. And they had the assumption that if it was them, because their cause was righteous, which was taking down fascistic Nazi Germany, and they showed the world what it was, then the world could see what they could only talk about in theory. Because he'd already realized that theory is either wrong or completely intractable. It, like He was like, you can't split the radium atom. I just proved it on this board. And Lawrence, played by an incredibly dreamy Josh Hartnett, walks in and says, uh, there's just one problem. We literally did it in the other room. So at that point, Oppenheimer's like, we've, we've almost got this bomb made. If we stop, someone else is going to try. But if we show them what it is and what it can do, and, you know, he says, like, they'll be so horrified they won't ever want to do it again. And, and Niels Bohr says the same thing. Like, have you made it? And is it incredible enough that it'll end all war? Like, these people had what is by now proven to be a very naive image that if we show them something so terrible... It will end this. Like we, people won't want this. And if we show, if we do this, it may work. And it didn't. And that's when his like moral scruples as the character who's interrogating him says changes. And it's too late at that point. You can't, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. It's just not going to work. Just to sort of like, I think maybe take down the temperature a little bit. So you have all of those incredibly intense conversations and then you want me to spend like an hour talking about some guy's security clearance yeah because the the security clearance is him trying to leverage his fame and his power whatever minuscule power he has to talk the world back from the brink of nuclear disaster there's literally i understand the movie i'm just saying it didn't work for me okay well then i don't okay (laughs) Yeah, but you understand that taking away his security clearance silences him. Like, this is not just like, oh, he's not going to be able to have access to files anymore. This is like saying that you are persona non grata. to the guy who the government yes. has said is not trustworthy enough to know what's going on? It's like, it's like a version of blacklisting, which we know has had an incredible impact on the culture, you know, in the 50s. Like... Maybe it doesn't feel high stakes, and I I understand that, but you know what? I don't know what would have felt more high stakes, like a murder trial. Like well, a- that's why people kept being like, I don't know when when it's over at Trinity, that should be the end of the movie. And I'm like, only if you're a fucking moron. Like that's that is the stupid jingoistic version of this story, and the story that we do get, which is man you know, to bring back to the Prometheus thing, uh, man brings fire to people. People start using fire to try to kill one another and he tries to walk it back and is silenced because of the stupidest, smallest personal animus 
on earth from a person who craves power not to like help anyone but to enrich himself is it's horrifying it's it's really fucked up that the one of the most important people in human history could be undermined by this goddamn shoe salesman who was just annoyed because Albert Einstein didn't say hi to him one day. It's it's insanity. I it's- don't really, I just didn't buy that as like the crux of the vendetta. Maybe well, it's not. I mean, it's also wrong. the isotope thing. He, 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 it's, yeah, he accidentally like- <laughs> shames him on a personal level and then on a professional level. And the guy is, 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 is like obsessed with this concept of like, the, they've got the bombs. We need a bigger bomb. And Oppenheimer is still trying to say like, no, no, what we need to do is we need to give this to the United Nations and I'll make a deal that we're not going to do it anymore. But that's not how Strauss thinks. And so he uses little machinations to completely destroy this guy. And now we have who even knows how many nuclear warheads that are just out and about that no one really thinks about anymore. That was a different thing because... Again, going back to the expectations that the movie sets up in terms of the social context, you get all of this talk, 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 talk about like how after 1945, the world will be different and uh, how like the fact that we sort of like invented these weapons to completely annihilate ourselves as a species like how that changed everything and honestly like that was so much more interesting to me than the security clearance thing and i think i and i of course like i understand where you're coming from in terms of like how he had this like really big peak that he felt ambivalent about ultimately and then he had this like really humiliating fall i understand that but i guess i don't know like a part of me is sort of like that's life (laughs) <laughs> like you don't get to sort of like rest your laurels because you did like one cool thing one time like maybe i don't know like look at fucking jk rowling like you just have to sort of like keep knowing how to play the game and i mean like i guess like yeah he's like a tragic figure because he was not very good at playing the game and just sort of lost like the ability to like politic anymore mm-hmm. but it just like didn't feel like a novel enough story to me because i was just sort of like isn't this like the downfall of so many people they do this like one great thing and then people just sort of like forget about them and then when they're vulnerable other people take advantage of them like that's just fucking life yes but this is, it is- on the scale of the potential end of all of humanity like it, so that makes it worse. It's, and again, like, I think if that was sort of like conveyed more in terms of like how the world had changed, I would feel differently. And instead, we got this like endless McCarthyist thing. And again, mm-hmm. I understand where it's coming from. It's just like the stage, the sort of like anticlimax of like the McCarthy stuff, just like didn't live up to the. I don't know, like horrifying grandeur of like what came before. I understand the people who I understand like why people feel that betrayal that much more keenly and why that's moving to them. I'm just saying it just like 
didn't move me as much as I wish it had. So like the the end where you see the ICBMs and all the contrails and the fire engulfing the earth, that didn't like set up stakes for you? Well, we had already <laughs> seen those yeah that's at the end so to me to me we've seen those images a few times and it was like reiterated at the end well no because at the end is when you get the final vision of like you see him him staring up at the icbms and then the end is when the camera shifts and you see that it's like an endless line Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's much more so i i think i think one thing that was lost on me are a couple of things and i don't know if it's the dialogue i don't know if it's the plotting and the writing of nolan here but i didn't get the impression that uh oppenheimer is the one kind of leading the charge to basically tell the un to back off of this um and to use his his political power and clout and kind of you know, his notoriety at that time as like, hey, I'm the one that created this or at least helped create this. You're saying I'm the one that's selling you. Correct. And I didn't get that stated out loud in. That's that's great, Brian. But I'm saying that as a person that watched it, I didn't get that Um, either. Either I missed that part or or I didn't I didn't you know, have it reiterated more than once. Um, But the other thing that I found very confusing was they set up that he makes a joke while on, on trial or something like that in front of uh, a committee hearing. And he makes a joke about something about sandwiches and you can see that he has insulted and the way that it kind of, plays out is frustrating because it is Nolan doing this time shift thing that feels very unnecessary and unwarranted at this point where we see the punchline and then, and then we see them kind of laugh about it. Then we see that sequence kind of play out a little bit longer and you realize the punchline is at uh, Strauss's uh, expense I I think you have that backwards. I'm pretty sure that you see it the first time and then like the next two times you see just the punchline. Okay. But it it felt like I was missing information there because I didn't even know what that punchline was about. I didn't know like it's it feels so weird that this film kind of purports that you know, the Albert Einstein thing. And then that sequence there is basically the animus that Strauss uses or has that kind of animates him to go against Oppenheimer and and basically like, and the, the hydrogen bomb disagreement around that circular. I mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it just feels like, like we get that that sandwich scene like two or three times, and I was just like, I don't understand the context here, and I, it was very frustrating to see that you know this film kind of uh, hangs on that, and for whatever reason, I just didn't get that full context, and I, I just I found that very confusing because it it like I said, it seems like this film has plenty of time on its hands. Um, and I didn't know if if I missed pieces of the dialogue, um, notably 
our dialogue was just slightly out of sync, um, which was annoying. Oh, but <laughs> I, I didn't like. I saw it in seventy millimeter. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it in IMAX, but I saw it in seventy millimeter. You and didn't miss anything in IMAX. <laughs> a, a lot of the a lot of the dialogue was pretty muddled again, and I know. Nolan has this reputation at this point. Um, I didn't see Tenet in theaters. I saw it on my TV uh, with a really nice sound system. So like I was able to crank up the dialogue and like, I think I might even put subtitles on, which maybe is something I need to start doing for Nolan movies. Um, but yeah, I, I was, I was not able to understand the context of that sequence. And I thought, I thought it was very frustrating, and I don't know I if anyone else. Absolutely, no going, trouble understanding the context of that sequence. So, if I you're know, going to do, do a Sorkin thing, you really have to make sure that. I mean, say what you will about Sorkin, and there are so many things to say, oh, but he God. does make sure that his actors enunciate. Also, and he I know makes I sure that, that they repeat lines like twenty six times back and <laughs> forth. I'm sorry. Are we supposed to think that the dialogue in this movie is good? Like. Yes. Just yeah. nothing. Oh my god! Like the... that line where it's like we're doing spoilers. That scene where he says that like destroyer of worlds. Oh my god! While he's having sex <laughs> <No>. with <laughs> Florence Pugh, I was just like, I'm sorry. Like, are we supposed to think this is a good scene? I was just thinking about that this morning, being like, <laughs> did she really pull that fucking book off of that shelf so he could read that out loud? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, she like got up, negged him. And then that's but that's it's so writerly. It's like gross to me. Like it's so inorganic. It's so inorganic. It- you guys clearly aren't having the right kind of sex. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you think that's the right kind of sex, I. Well, Sorry I will say I, I I can't remember the last time I had IMAX cameras in the bedroom. So I mean, you know, there's that. <laughs> what? <laughs> also, I think like the like rock bottom scene for me is when Florence Pugh's body double starts having sex with Killian Murphy in that courtroom scene, mm-hmm. and I just thought, literally, what is the point of this? It. I mean, like, I guess, like, we're supposed to think that, like, he's melancholy for her or whatever, but there are 1,000 ways to show that, and that was fucking not it. Well, it's also a literalization of the way that the, you know what, fuck it, I don't care. (laughs) No, we know what it means. We know that it's an expressionistic way of showing that he feels humiliated and naked and exposed, like we know what it means. It just feels so like ick. on the nose. Yes. <laughs> obvious and ick. I'm like, I don't need to see like Florence Hughes lug nuts. It just didn't Why add do anything. Why say lug nuts all the time? It's so Because they're fucking lug nuts. <laughs> it was just like, what? what's the point of this? That character wasn't even interesting. It added nothing to the movie. Okay. She truly did not. 
All right. W- was she murdered? Because I remember one of the sequences shows like a black glove behind her head when they show the sequence when she's like putting her head in the water in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Is is that supposed to intimate that she was murdered or is that them pulling her head of her dead body out of the water? So there's there's it- enough about there's enough around her suicide that clearly Oppenheimer believes that it's possible that she was murdered. Okay. And so yeah. he, he envisages envisages one, it's her drowning anxiety and, fantasy. and two, and like, that's a chilling scene. Like that lets you know, like how deep into this world he is and how like, again, high the stakes are in his mind. Now that he's aware of like the security that's around him after having gone and seen mm-hmm. her and then going to tell the, the people that they need to look out for this executive at Shell and then suddenly she's dead and he's aware of the fact that he's been followed and like yeah it's 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 haunting having complained yeah, he- quite a bit about the supposed eye candy on offer I will just very quickly say I very much appreciated seeing Tony Goldwyn on a very yeah. big screen oh yeah that he's he remains a handsome man <laughs> He is. Who? who? He was like the, the judge in the center of the the trio. He's not a like judge. A, they're like a, the tribunal. He's the center tribunalist. <laughs> yeah. Next to the old guy. Yeah. Who no, is like, you gotta watch some scandal. Scandal? He's apparently. Yeah, there's a TV show name? called Scandal. To- oh, Tony, Tony Goldwyn. Okay. He, he was way down the class list. Oh, this guy. Yeah, I know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Really? He's like the sixth. No, no, I don't know. He's like the 10th one in the cast list on mine. On 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 I'm Wikipedia, kidding. he no. is not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know nothing about that. I feel like there must be some intense politicking among various publicists in order to figure out the uh, order I have to imagine on this show or movie. It, I have to imagine it was either in order of appearance or just like, what's going to call it? alphabetical after a certain point well it's i mean it's not it, alphabetical here well i don't what, know how they do it on IMDb, but i imagine that like in the in i don't know yeah i don't know yeah we're getting a little appealed <laughs> um i have a question for you guys because i felt very um ambivalent about this particular issue there's been a lot of talk i believe on the film twitter um X. Brian's, you mean film X? <laughs> no. About how you don't see any Japanese people, or nor do you really actually see any of the people who died. The fallout. Um, yes. You see Oppenheimer's sort of like imagination of what would have happened if like the white people around him had died, but mm-hmm. not like the actual, again, group of people who died um and initially i think i was sort of mad at the movie about this because i have been thinking a lot about sort of like the blindfolds that we have chosen to put on as a culture and sort of like zooming out a little bit i think i've been thinking about this a lot because we have this squeamishness this extremely understandable squeamishness about not seeing the bodies of 
gun victims uh like after like a mass shooting Mm -hmm. and do i want to see any of that like absolutely not but do i think that there might be some sort of you know value a la emmett till to see like hey like the things that we have been talking about ad nauseum this is like what it actually looks like um and so initially I was sort of like, well, it feels really weird that, like, you don't really get any of those images at all. Um, And then I was also sort of like, well, like, do I need to see this? But then a different part of me was sort of like, well, how much of, like, those images have actually really disappeared from our historical memory Mm. um, as a result of it being such, what now, like, almost 75 years ago? Um, Something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I just like felt really torn about those issues. Um, and so I was curious about other people's thoughts on that. So I I feel like I've seen those images a lot. Um, the people? Yeah, it's uh, it's awful. Um, oh, I I'm was... sorry. I, I do want to add that there is like a scene where you watch like <laughs> Oppenheimer's reaction to seeing those scenes, right? Right. But I also think that there is something about a nuclear weapon that is so utterly annihilating that it does feel very different from other kinds of weaponry. Right. And my, I thought about that too. Cause like when I heard Oppenheimer, I'm like, the last thing that I want in a movie like this is like, like, like it's still a Hollywood movie. Like it's it's gonna be weird if if they like try to make a spectacle out of it. Like it's it's yeah. almost like what's the like how do how would people how would one assume that you could do it in a way that would properly show the horror of it without making it like aesthetically pleasing like i don't i don't even like know turning right it into like it. gore and right. i don't i don't yeah like, it, that's it's what i sort was of, concerned about yeah it's so it's like it's so unspeakable and it's so awful that i think hearing about it and seeing his reaction to it does a better job because like you could either do it but it would involve like you know cg and it would turn it into like a weird like centerpiece like that shouldn't be a centerpiece and i don't know that there's a way to make it distressing enough that it and and if and if you did it would almost like destroy the ability to like watch the rest of the movie so like i i shouldn't it kind of you know yes but like there are there are things that exist that do it uh people were passing around a lot of them on twitter um but I just don't, I don't know. Like I, I, I've, I struggled with that. I think it's not, I think that the movie does it the best way that it could. I just don't, I don't know how you, how you do it in a way that also wouldn't upset people. That like, doesn't it exploit seems like a zero the sum game. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, oh, well you could yeah. use like documentary footage and you could show that, but then it's like, okay, but like now we're using the actual victims. Like that just feels even worse somehow like i just i when people brought it up it seemed to me insane that anyone would want to see that when it when we know and we get the numbers and like the scale of it is so horrible and it's not like it hasn't been seen in other things and that the images aren't out there if you want them and i just don't know how you slot it into this movie in a way that doesn't feel like exploitative in some way so i understand the the like sense that maybe it should be 
but I don't know that there's a way to do it that wouldn't be even more of a father and like more or disrespectful or yeah. So I saw the movie with somebody that I know who did not like it and it's not my husband, but somebody else. And their sort of argument was like the movie was boring and they were there for the carnage. Wow. And yeah. See, that's the type of person you don't want to pander to. <laughs> and that's, and that's why I think I am glad it did not include that because I just don't think that audience, I don't think that the majority of audiences could probably handle the Wait, scale well, of what that would look like. And, and it, and unfortunately, hold on. Something that I sort of learned in a screenwriting class many years ago is like, if you show a dead body, then that is a tragedy. But if you show like a random limb, then that's comedy. And I've always thought about that a lot in terms of like horror movies and stuff. And I just kind of get, I kind of get this weird feeling that if you did start showing sort of like the broad you know, horror spectacle of something like this, it would like inadvertently become comedy or be, or used in like a weird like trolley kind of way. Like, I don't know. It just, uh, I just think that it would be you, it would end up like, I agree with you, Brian, that it would end up being exploitative, but also I could see those images being used in a really disrespectful way. Like, yeah memed or something yeah that would be fucking awful uh the other so like there were three guys in front of me who were like ki- kind of those kind of guys who were like mm. i don't know like i wanted more of like the explosions and like why wasn't that just it and like i had a conversation with them afterwards and i was like why would that be it the whole point is that it's not a triumph <laughs> like you fucking idiots like this is an insane thing that you're saying right now and I just, yeah, I almost, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely glad that they were disappointed by this movie because they deserved to be <laughs> like, I just don't, I don't see how you, they're like, we wanted more, we wanted it just to be Trinity. And it's like, well, the movie isn't called Trinity. It's called Oppenheimer. And to truly, <laughs> like, if it ends at Trinity, it's a, we did it. We saved the rec center. Like it needs to keep going in order to show the way that it affected him and the way that he lost control of this thing he made. I mean, right after Trinity, when it cuts to those buses, not buses, trucks leaving, like the movie shifts and it becomes a horror story. Like at that point you get his hallucinations. He sees all of the people cheering, dying. He can't hear their clapping. He can only hear like the weird sound of their chairs. It's at that point that the thing that you thought the whole movie was like a train or a bombing was actually the stomping of their feet, which is haunting him because he realizes that he created something awful and these people helped, but they're fucking amped about it. Like, yeah, I think, I think that the showing the psychological toll on him, who is, you know, the protagonist of the movie is a good way of showing how fucking awful it is. And I just don't, I don't see any way to include all of that that it ma- like that it would that it would work in that way and i think in the way that the movie is trying to say like now this but the whole world you know requires it to to focus on this guy because he's the lens through which we see it are there think, uh, satisfying movies about this i was going to bring this up oh uh, i don't know about a bomb but uh, i i wanted to touch on this real quick so um a couple of things i think 
I think if you try and recreate sequences like that, I think that's very fraught. Um, I think there is existing footage that could be used in a way that would be informative and not feel not feel exploitative. And a recent example that that used some some real life footage at the end to kind of make its point um, was Black Klansman. Yeah, and, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that. Yeah. And they used that. And I remember being in a theater kind of, you know, the. I think that film is a very different thing because that film is kind of it's kind of like joking about the idiocy of some of these people. And then it ends in that very potent way, which kind of is a, is a almost a slap across the face in a way. Um, it's a very different mood and a little and, like you, you thought know. this was funny, actually. Correct. Like, right. I, I remember, but, I remember my reaction. No, let was let Bill finish like, his thought, please. Yeah. Um, thank you, Inko. Um, so I thought that was a very powerful message and use of that kind of footage where you could put it at the end and and maybe talk about some of these things that even Ingu is bringing up, you know, about, uh, you know, maybe not recontextualize it, but maybe, you know, make it very obvious that, you know, Oppenheimer was trying to make sure that he, you know, didn't see the continued use of nuclear uh, warfare down the line. And maybe we talk about, you know, the actual real life, you know, results of this, and you could show some of that documentary footage that I'm sure is out there. Um, you know, I've seen probably some images and things like that in textbooks, but, you know, I've never really watched any footage. Um, that's not really my bag. Um, but you know, uh, I, I definitely think that there's plenty of that stuff out there, um, that could be used as maybe kind of a potent ending. And, you know, because again, I think if you try and recreate that kind of stuff like that, that just becomes a whole different bag. Um, I think maybe ending this film with some of that documentary footage would be, would be something that he could utilize in that way. That isn't exploitative. That isn't, you know, what the dude bros are just going there to see, but also informative. And, you know, because I, I think one thing that a lot of these films when we discuss them, we always are coming at it from our own perspective, which is valid, but a lot of criticism or a lot of things kind of revolve around, well, I know what happened and I know, you know, what that looked like. And I know, you know, what the result of this. It will, but maybe you do but a lot of yeah. people probably still don't. Right. And so I think anytime, especially when, you know, and, and we joked about it kind of at the beginning, right. Uh, the A-bomb is dropped. Right. And it's like, yeah, I get that. That's kind of a joke. Right. But it's also like somebody could be listening to our podcast and, you know, maybe doesn't know that context or, you know, doesn't watch the movie or whatever. Right. And or you know, it's not like, pictures. 
Yeah. And and it's not like, oh, that's a spoiler as in like, oh, you know, history, history is a spoiler. Yeah. But like sometimes we come in with a lot more baggage or or a lot more knowledge than some other people are coming into this film and, you know, knowing what happened and what is the result and, you know, what is the fallout of that? So I think that's important to kind of keep in mind as well when we talk about, you know, especially historical stuff like this. I do. I'm curious if anybody has seen any other films about this or I've never seen the TV show Manhattan, although that's been on my list for a while, but I know there's another film uh, that takes a different big boy, big uh, boy fat and, man and, and little boy. Yeah. 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 Which came oh wait, that's a Christian. Oh wait, no, there was like a Christian movie that I think was called Little Boy that was something about this, and I might be remembering it incorrectly, but I believe not the boy in the striped pajamas. The ending of like a movie <laughs> was something along the lines of like, "Well, thank you God for like dropping the A bomb so that no. my daddy." That is incredible, and I want to see that movie immediately. <laughs> That's I'm pretty boring. sure I reviewed that's it. That's the worst <laughs> thing ever. And I'm, that's I'm why so I'm no sorry, longer Ingo. a film critic. <laughs> yeah, that was it. That was and this is years. why. <laughs> so, so Fat Man and Little Boy, which I kind of want to see now, came out in 89. And it's really about the character that uh, Matt Damon played. Um, uh, mm, Colonel Yeah. And it's so in this film, he's played by Paul Newman. And other characters or people there's john cusack there's laura dern there yeah. is john c mcginley natasha richardson what? plays florence what? pugh's character gene tatlock so this i, I might watch this I just to see, see a different that. perspective um bonus episode yeah hey. <laughs> you're invited well, so, so so what what is this called again it's called fat man, fat and, man little and little boy which is okay uh, okay yeah that's the other one i keep hearing cited yeah, I'm just I'm curious if any other essentially good movies have been made about this. Um, I'm curious if there have been Japanese movies made about Hiroshima and Nagasaki that weren't like metaphorical like Godzilla. Um, oh, yeah, I mean, there 100 percent are. I know that a bunch were named on Twitter and I have them written down somewhere, but not accessible to me at the moment. I mean, I'm definitely interested in this history. And so I want to explore more. But, uh, you know, nothing. I don't think anything's going to be perfect. Like. I've certainly complained a lot about this movie, but I did, I did get a lot out of it. I don't know if I would watch it again. Um, oh, I'm definitely going to go see it in theaters again, at least once more before it leaves. Why theaters? Like, what is it about this movie that drew you in, in, in such a grand scale? Cause it's a, it's a grand story. Like, I don't know. Like the, 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 the ups are so full of expression. The it's beautiful. Like the score swells and it it just feels good and it's it's nice to be in a giant ass room and like also I think I think um COVID has like taught me like how like Im- like impactful it is to see something in theaters like you'll hear a lot of our episodes during COVID where I was like yeah I had to put my phone like in the freezer because. In a theater, I would never take my phone out. But at home, it's my fucking house. And like, you know, in this movie, I had to pause halfway through because I couldn't help but notice how dirty my floors are, which is like a problem. And this movie, I don't think would suffer from any of that at home. But like, as long as it's in the theaters, if I want to see it again, like that's the way to see it. I was fortunate enough to be able to see Tenet finally on a big screen 
the day before I saw Oppenheimer on an even bigger screen. And I love Tenet and I've seen Tenet like more times than I can count. And seeing it in theaters was even better. Like it just, it is a better experience. Like it's just great to be able to do that thing. I think this is the rare movie that might play equally well at the theater and at home. I think the theatrical experience, like for me, like so much of like those random images of like all of the lights and just like the overwhelmingness of the sound. Um, I saw this on an IMAX screen. It honestly like was too big. Uh, But I think it was sort of like the rare movie or like the first movie in a while I've seen where it was just like a sensory overload in a good way. But also, if you watch at home, you can probably actually catch all of the dialogue by See, putting the subtitles I, on. I don't know if it's your theaters, but I definitely caught all of the dialogue both times I saw yeah, this. Yeah, I didn't have I trouble with it. Which I was shocked about. Um, I did find it uh, orally overwhelming. I had to close my... I had to, like, stuff my fingers into my ears several times because... I did not have that problem. It was so fucking loud and, like, and each painful. Each time that I've seen it, I've had, like nightmares afterwards um it's like kept me up both times i saw it wow it's i mean it's an, it's an incredibly like it again. <laughs> yeah it's an incredibly powerful i mean like you know uh i like break down emotionally every time i watch uh manchester by the sea but i keep doing that to myself so oh my like, god why not why would you watch that movie more than the one because <laughs> it's incredible and it's one of the you few movies that makes my masochist. particular brand of depression feel accurately depicted so watching he it is makes a masochist. Me feel, watching watching manchester by the sea makes me feel like less alone and more understood and so i find catharsis in it no comment <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I like that movie. But yeah, this I did too. I would never rewatch it. <laughs> it's it's a tough watch. I'm not yes. going to say like sit down with a thing of popcorn and then go on a run afterwards. Um but yeah, no, like this this movie like I went home and I was like shaken by it on like seven different levels because like first of all like the overwhelming destructive force of this thing is just something that like doesn't get talked about anymore. Um, someone on Twitter who'd been on this podcast before, and now I can't remember which one, um, said like, do we like, you know, does, is anyone still afraid of the, like the A-bomb? Like, is that still a thing we're concerned about? Like, is that like, is is it that (laughs) kind of thing where it's like, um, oh, when we were kids, we were all afraid of quicksand, but no one talks about quicksand anymore. And it's like, you know, has it been replaced by like global warming and mass shootings? And I'm like, you know, I think perhaps it doesn't get talked about as much as it did during the cold war, obviously. Read the news about Russia. Right. But I said, like, you know, Russia has brought it back. Like, for a while, the big concerns were, like, terrorism, dirty bombs, anthrax, smallpox. And now I think, like, we're back to realizing, like, oh, right, there are still superpowers with these things that are constantly on the brick of some kind of war. Um, So, yeah, I I think it's – I don't want to say fortuitous, but it's definitely – a certain kind of timing that this is coming out now. Um, and yeah, and, and then just, and then just like this, this conception of like the, the, the stupid shitty human concerns that lead to unchecked nuclear proliferation. Like, you know, if, if this one guy hadn't been such a little bitch about things, 
Like, would Oppenheimer have been more successful? Like, you know, would he have, would he have been able to do something? You no. Know, if it wasn't for this one man, well, how could you say no? I, because of people. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think you can ever put this genie back in its bottle. I think, I think that's, I, I understand that you could put things in place to maybe limit it or, you know, maybe it wouldn't be as prolific prolific as they are now but i don't think you're ever putting this back in its bottle because even if you tell people what like to what finish your thought please phil i didn't do anything uh (laughs) yeah i don't know you shouted my name no, yeah. I was going to say something, but then I realized I oh. was interrupting Phil. Oh, okay. I thought you were telling me, like, Brian, let Phil finish his thought. And I was like, I wasn't even doing anything this time. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just I don't think you can you can put this back in his bottle. And I think in particular, I don't I think there was so much research already done and out there that it it would be impossible to keep other countries from exploring this themselves because anytime we see like i mean we see this all the time where anytime someone has a, a new fast you know fighter jet someone else has to come up with one that's faster and has is more deadly and like does other things like it's it's just I don't know. It's it's the the military industrial complex is is so like it's just not going to ever let that happen to me. So Um, I think maybe that's why Bill and I enjoyed the movie less, because I don't think either. And I'm speaking for you, I guess, a little bit, Bill, here. But like, I don't think either of us were ever under the impression that Oppenheimer could have any effect whatsoever in terms of affecting nuclear proliferation and so it never seemed to me like he was losing out on some grand thing and something about like the pettiness of robert downey jr's character ended up impacting world concerns on any level like i just thought once you made this and then you were going to be usurped almost immediately by the benny Safi character by the hydrogen bomb then like mm-hmm. that's it like like that's over <laughs> it's it's done and it doesn't really matter if you like go out there and you do your little like speech about how we have to tamp this down because like that's not the fucking world we live in bro but the fact that they needed to take him down kind of tells you that they were worried that he could do it i mean he he was able to get the isotopes sent to Scandinavia. That's one of the reasons that Downey Jr.'s character hated him. You know, he clearly had an impact because when he spoke, it was the father of the atom bomb that was speaking, which is why they needed to take away his security clearance and discredit him. So like, I don't know, in, in my head, the movie, I mean, and this is a whole side of this story that I'd never heard I mean, maybe heard that's about. like so what the, the movie, movie was supposed to say, but like, I never really felt like that was realistic on any level. And so it was really hard for me to care. Well, I did. So I did care. I I, I think we've (laughs) just sort of like identified the crux of why Bill and I were so much more underwhelmed by this movie than you were. And again, like I'm not saying either side is correct. I'm just saying that's like a thing that I've identified. I can't account for Robin's bizarre taste. 
<laughs> well, she, she's Sorry, I just understood this it. movie more than you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we done? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we talked about this movie for a very long time. Yeah. All right. I cool. think I think we touched on, we on a lot about of that. Josh Hartnett. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Is there anything to say about Josh? I don't Hartnett? know, Brian. He's like on any level, talk so much about Josh Hartnett. Yeah, but now I just don't want to anymore. So I'm good. <laughs> good. I never wanted to. He meant nothing <laughs> to me. Oh, all right. Uh, well, that's, that's it for golden, today. Um, Robin, what are we talking about next week? I think we're off next week, but we're doing a fire after that. The new puzzled. Ooh, fun. Excellent. Uh, we'll look forward to that. It's always a good time when we're talking Petzl on this here podcast. Um, other than that, uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. And of course, uh, email us podcastfilmstage.com if you want to. We are brought to you by our patrons or at patreon.com slash the film stage show. So go there and give us your money. And we are brought to you by Mubi. Go to mubi.com slash film stage for your free 30 day trial subscription to Mubi. Um, that's it. Uh, let's tell all the fine people where we can be found between now and the next time before we wrap up. Uh, so Inga, would you like to plug your pluggables? Sure. Um, anyone who wants more of this obnoxiousness can find me, uh, in the pages and on the website of the New Yorker, uh, newyorker.com. I am around on social media, Twitter, Bluesky. Don't come <laughs> find me on Facebook at Ingang. And I also just started a newsletter that just has like weekly recommendations for TV shows and articles and various like social media posts. Um, it is called This Was Cool. And I believe it is pretty easy to find. So those are my plugs. All right. Excellent. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG, but I don't tweet much um, or X, whatever it's called. Um, it's Twitter. You can it's also be find me. We die. <laughs> okay. Uh, bring me my bird. Um, you can do that. You could also find me on Instagram at BillStagram. Um, and then you can always find me mixing it up in the Slack channel. All right. Robin Barr. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R. I'm also on Letterboxd. And you can send, sometimes find my writing at The Hollywood Reporter. All right. Excellent. As for myself, uh, you can find out more about the whiskey that I make at inkwellwhiskey.com. Uh, you can follow me on th- Twitter, Threads, Blue Sky, fucking Instagram, <laughs> at Brian J. Rowan. Um... And uh, yeah, I think I think that's about it as far as my personal stuff. But don't forget that you can, in fact, find more of my writing and every single thing that uh, we have ever done here on the film stage over at thefilmstage.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in and tune in next time. Subscribe to this point of view